Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone, to Love's Labour's Watch, your favourite pop culture female focused podcast. It's been a little while, but hello, we're back. How's it going? How are you, Francesca? Yes, I'm doing well. Obviously, uh, in the UK, we're in another lockdown, but I've been enjoying a lot of great books and TV and film recently. And you know, hunkering down on these dark lockdown evenings and making the most of the pop culture that's available. On that note, we have a lot of exciting content to discuss today, but we're going to begin with an author interview and focusing in on a new book, You Exist Too Much by Zaina Arafat. Helena, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit more about what this book is about? You Exist Too Much is kind of written from the perspective of a young Palestinian-American woman navigating kind of her sexuality, um, her relationship with her family, particularly with her mother, her relationship both sort of with her past traumas and her mental struggles uh, and also with her cultural heritage and what that kind of dual heritage and dual experience of nationality and ethnicity kind of makes her life like and it's really interesting it's kind of told in a series of vignettes kind of going between her life in the US as an adult and her experiences kind of um, in the Middle East as a young woman and as a girl as well so it's a really interesting take I think on a cultural experience it was really really interesting to read and really nicely written as well very engaging so it's really exciting to talk about it. Yes, absolutely. We both really enjoyed the novel and we were really excited to speak to the author, Zaina Arafat. Zaina is an LGBTQ Arab Muslim American author. Zaina's work has been published in the New York Times, Vice, The Atlantic and Granta, among other publications. And she's currently based in Brooklyn. So she was able to call us up from her home and we were so excited to speak to her. We had a great conversation, so I reckon we should just dive straight into that and let you all tune in. Yeah, let's go for it. Enjoy. Hi, Dana. Welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us. And we're so excited to speak to you about your debut novel, You Exist Too Much, which both Helena and I read and really enjoyed. And we're so excited to get into it with you today. So to start off, we wonder if you could give us a brief spoiler-free synopsis of your novel for any listeners who haven't had the chance to read it yet. Yeah, absolutely. So the novel is um, follows a, a LGBTQ Palestinian-American woman as she traces a pattern of destructive romantic relationships um, while all of this against the backdrop of her Arab Muslim culture and while coming to terms with her relationship to her borderline mother. Um, and so the book is basically exploring um, a number of themes, including love, including family, um, being the child of immigrants and, you know, the sort of divide between the immigrant generation and the first generation. And um, it's weaving and gender and sexuality as well, because there is um, the character is queer. And so all of these themes are sort of coursing through um, the trajectory of the novel and these love stories that are happening. And this is your debut novel. So we wondered what inspired you to write it and what was that writing process like for you? 
Sure, yeah. So I, um, well, I was inspired to write it by a sort of, I, it began with a question for me. Um, and it was a question around the concept of unattainability. And I was just thinking about the idea of like why it is that sometimes things that are off in the distance can be more appealing than what we have right in front of us. And so I had the idea to create this character who um, sets her sights on the unattainable. And in this case, her, the unattainable is um, for her unattainable women. And so that was how the book kind of began, is with that idea. And the process was sort of expanding out from just that first level of, you know, unattainability in terms of love and unrequited love and thinking about it on a more like cultural level. Um, she's Palestinian American, she's in between cultures and sort of unable to attain like full access to one culture or the other um, and a full sense of like identity. And then I started thinking about it on a like even more macro level as a Palestinian and unattainability mm. of like statehood and self-determination. So, so that was sort of how it began and the kind of process of how it evolved. Yeah, absolutely. I think that really comes through in the novel. Um, and equally, uh, the main character kind of remains nameless throughout the novel. Um, was that a particular choice or did it kind of emerge as you were writing? Like, what was the thinking there? Yeah, so that was a choice. Um, it, you know, it was a decision I made later in the process because initially I had given her a name and then I decided to take it away because, so, you know, the, the book is called You Exist Too Much um, and that's a line that's spoken to the narrator by her mother and it's basically when you tell someone you exist too much, you're essentially saying you should exist less. And so um, part of her struggle is overcoming that feeling that she isn't allowed to take up space in the world by virtue of who she is, by virtue of embodying unacceptable um, like identities as a queer woman, um, for one thing. And mm. so I took away her name because, you know, that sort of spoke to this feeling of existing too much. Um, I wanted her to sort of exist as little as possible on the page. And there are some relationships in which she doesn't even speak a single word. There's, she has no dialogue. Um, and so that was just an homage to that inner feeling she has of existing too much was to not give her a name. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and you touched a bit on it earlier, but your protagonist's queerness forms a core part of her identity and therefore her experiences in the novel. We see her struggle with telling her family about her sexuality and struggling with her love addiction as well. We wonder if you could speak a bit more about that part of your protagonist's identity. Her love addiction? Yeah, and her sexuality as well. Yeah, sure. So, um, so the character is, you know, she's Arab and she is Muslim and she, um, she kind of comes from a culture where existing as such is um, not entirely embraced. And so her sexuality is something that she has kept hidden, not only from others in her life, but like also from herself almost. And in a way she's internalized a lot of the homophobia that exists around her. And that internalized homophobia can lead to really destructive behaviors in love um, and in relationships. And so this pattern of love addicted relationships and just basically um, kind of 
falling into these incredibly toxic dynamics and often like dynamics where which are really asymmetrical where you know the other person doesn't have romantic feelings for her and she's just sort of pouring her own romantic feelings into them that is i think a way for her to that's how this internalized homophobia can manifest um is in really outwardly destructive behaviors because it's easier for her to um fall into these cycles rather than to have a real fulfilling like healthy queer relationship um and so i think that's a lot of how these tie together and the love addiction is also something that um comes from wounds in childhood as well and you know the relationship with the mother who herself is largely unattainable um to this narrator and whose affection the narrator whose affection and approval this narrator really craves yeah yeah and i think those kind of two themes of sort of and the love addiction and childhood trauma and then also kind of internalized homophobia from lack of acceptance kind of then also reflects as well in this other theme of identity which is you know the protagonist kind of understanding experience of her arab side of her culture and heritage you know she feels this heritage keenly through some really highly sensory memories that are shared with the reader and also these experiences that you know are shared of growing up as part of this kind of community both in the middle east and in america um, and her experiences, I think, are sort of really informed by these different facets of her identity. And I would be interested to think about how you navigated building a character who is so, not so intersectional, but more like made up of these intersectional kind of meetings, I suppose. Well, yeah, that was something that I was really determined to do, um, uh, was to create intersectionality within this character, just because... I think in the 21st century so many people embody so many, you know, overlapping and seemingly contradictory identities, you know, like in her case she's she's queer and she's Arab and she's Muslim and she mm. is, you know, um also American and she's bisexual so she's, you know, likes both men and women and like I I wanted to allow these to just exist within her without feeling this urge to like reconcile them or tidy them yeah. um and to show how they sort of like how each identity each level each layer butts up against um how they interact with one another basically and how like her sexuality her in, and her bisexuality speaks to her biculturalism um and you know just really thinking about what it means to embody all of these identities but that you know so many of us do in this day and age Yeah and that there's a moment where your protagonist is visiting Egypt and she notes that although so to quote she says though I've been enjoying the role I wasn't actually a tourist the fact that I grew up outside the Middle East doesn't make me any less Arab and that section we thought was really interesting and you spoke a bit about it in your last answer but what do you think is the impact of juggling with this duality and how did you want to reflect that in the book I think that the impact of embracing and struggling with that duality or just embodying and and struggling with that duality is that you feel a constant sense of um non-belonging and you know this narrator is so alienated in so many ways like she's alienated from any kind of an LGBTQ community because she's you know doesn't accept that part of herself 
she's alienated culturally because she's not, you know, fully, she doesn't feel fully Palestinian, nor does she feel fully American. She feels like an outsider in both worlds. And so I think that that experience um, and that struggle is just part of what keeps her in this state of like feeling alienated and possibly also feeling like she can't really be part of any healthy relationship and why like she loves sort of asymmetrically. Um, and I think I, it also just speaks to that feeling of not being entitled to your existence when you are, um, you know, in a way being both is like, feels like being neither. And I think that she really does feel like neither and therefore like is constantly trying to validate an existence for that reason. Yeah. On that same vein, I suppose, um, as we work kind of through the novel, following the protagonist's main character's journey, there's this sort of big discussion throughout of the nature of, of relationships, you know, what is healthy, what is, you know, unhealthy, you know, this question of healthy behaviour and what is normal, I suppose, in relationship kind of is discussed and dealt with through the novel, through her many different relationships and also, you know, through the kind of rehab centres she attends, um, you know, as she's trying to recover from various traumas, eating disorder, struggles, those kinds of things. Um, and I think as a society, or we thought that people can obsess about this idea of healthy versus unhealthy, normal versus not normal. Was this something that you were interested in kind of tackling in your novel? Was it something that you wanted to kind of say or bring up about how we deal with what is normal in a relationship? Yeah, I mean, um, I do. I, I think that, <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah. Because yeah. in like many ways, I do think that her relationships are abnormal you know i think what i was trying to also challenge was um or her relationships i can see from the outside like even creating her i can see that they're destructive and problematic in many ways in many ways but like what i was trying to really a question i guess that i was grappling with myself is like what does healthy love healthy romantic love look like you know like in especially when we get so many conflicting and maybe like misleading images of what a healthy romantic relationship should be. And maybe we have this idea that it should be, you know, um, all of this sort of like romanticism, I suppose. And she sort of brings that to a lot of these relationships. And I was just sort of questioning like, well, you know, in the absence of that, what is a healthy relationship or is that necessary for a healthy relationship? Mm -hmm. How long you know, what happens when that fades? Because for her, when that, you know, with, when that fades, she sort of, things sort of change for her as well. Like mm. her feelings kind of change. But like, what, what does it mean to, to be in a relationship past that point? And um, yeah, what constitutes a healthy romantic relationship really? And what constitutes yeah. any kind of healthy relationship, I suppose? But really, like, yeah. in this case, the context of uh, romantic relationships, yeah. Yeah, and on the note of relationships, the book also explores the character's very complex relationship with her mother. And it also, there's a, a chapter where you kind of jump a bit more to the mother's point of view, and we see how she was impacted by her own relationship with her parents, we wondered what you were trying to say here about the importance and the impact of family and 
the often complex familial relationships that many people have? Yeah, I mean, so for me, I think it's, this is what I, what I was trying to show was that um, within a family, right? Like, I think, especially in a mother-daughter relationship, and especially in this mother-daughter relationship, there's a great amount of tension and mm. amount of, like, anger in many ways that the narrator feels for what she's sort of undergone at the hands of the mother who has behaved in ways that are, um, you know, really painful to this narrator and at times sort yeah. of abusive. And I think I wanted to explore, you know, what it is about this mother's experience that causes her to you know act the way that she does towards her daughter and I think I wanted to show how like trauma in one generation and in this case like the mother who grew up under occupation in the West Bank in between wars um, you know constantly surrounded by violence and you know sort of having to um, you know marry at a young age like how does all of that affect her as a mother and a person in the world and so I think we often forget that when we're looking at like our own parents or family members um and I wanted to really excavate how trauma in one generation can kind of like trickle down into the next generation um and 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 not necessarily it's not that the next generation necessarily inherits that trauma but they're certainly impacted by it yeah, absolutely. And I think there's quite an interesting aside that I suppose in like the trauma of 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 conflict and of family difficulties on sort of the 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 younger uh, uh generations. And I don't know, like do you kind of see that as sort of an you know, is it an ongoing issue for your main character for example, you know, in saying that like does it does it ever get any better I suppose or is that conflict kind of ongoing particularly given you know her her queer identity and her Arab American identity do you kind of see any I suppose um resolution for your character and therefore resolution for her her heritage and for her her family members who've come before her well yeah I mean I think within within reason there is um resolution where there's like a sort of meeting in the middle between the mother and the daughter where you know, it's not necessarily, or it's not, it's not, I think one, there are many ways to look at the trajectory of the book. And one of them for me is like a trajectory of this narrator understanding her mother and arriving mm. at a place mm. of like empathy and compassion and love. And I think that towards that end, there is progress for sure. And I think that the mother's journey is similar. Um, is arriving at a place of like empathy yeah. and, uh, and understanding and compassion for her daughter, and I do mm-hmm. think that there's also progress, you know, from her on, in that direction as well, from the mother towards the daughter. And so, it's not like they fully overcome this tension, you know. It's but it's certainly they get closer to a place of under, mutual understanding and empathy and compassion. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because you know the novel's told through the first person and we focus on the protagonists. We're very aware of her inner thoughts and her conflicts and her feelings and emotions the whole way through. We only really see her mother through her eyes. And the other characters in the book also remain somewhat on the periphery, even her love interests and her close friends. So we wondered uh, what you were doing with this, this myopic focus and whether we can read more into that about how 
that is how most of us see our lives and see ourselves almost as the main character in our story. Um, and yeah, we thought it was a really interesting choice and particularly for a book that's sort of a coming of age story in a way. You mean the choice, um, sorry, what's, what choice exactly? I, was... um, I guess, well, the choice to, um, to opt for a first person narrator and also the choice to very closely follow the experiences of your protagonist um, and not, for example, alternate chapters from her mother's point of view or, um, you know, allow us to see how some of her love interests and, and the, the people who she forms these obsessions over feel. You know, it's funny because there was a version where I did do that and it wasn't oh. always in the first person. Yeah, and it alternated between exactly as you said, like perspectives from the other characters. And like, I think that, I mean, to me, what was most interesting was this protagonist, like this sort of, the psychology, I wanted to understand myself, like the psychology of her behavior and like yeah. why a person would behave in these ways. And it wasn't so easy to, especially, I mean, given all of the different, I think, factors influencing her behavior and like identity markers that she possesses, it wasn't necessarily easy to detect why it was that she behaved the way that she did. And it was mm -hmm. such an inward like uh, motivation that I felt like once I moved away from that, you know, first person sort of myopic, I guess, um, narration, I, I yeah. lost, I lost control of, of the novel. I like, or just like mm -hmm. lost control of the ability to arrive at a place where like the reader could understand the like real psychological implications behind like her behavior. And like, yeah, I, it wouldn't, it, it felt so important to me just because, you know, I think that being self-sabotaging and destructive can be a result of trauma, a result of like internalized shame or homophobia. And I wanted that to be what really rose from, you know, I wanted that to really rise up and to be clear. And I felt like if I, yeah, I didn't want to stray too far away from her because I don't think it would have had, I wouldn't have been able to really demonstrate those inner like, psychological workings um, yeah. it was just such a novel of like I guess inner psychology in so many ways to me um, in addition to like well, outward manifestations of it so that's why you know I mean there is like the chapter from the mother's perspective and I wanted that to come sort of where it does come like towards the end because I just felt like it would be more impactful since we've been really only receiving the mother through the narrator's eyes and to finally have this moment where we can see her in her own right would feel so rewarding. And so, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's, that's how it, that's how that decision was made. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah, became too did. sprawling almost all otherwise. <laughs> it was like, this feels more like just tighter control to me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also structurally, I think, you know, what the novel does do, which I think surprised us both, we expected a bit more of a a past than present kind of approach. I think it's a lot more sort of uh, vignette -y than that, if that makes sense. Uh, you know, it jumps between present day life in Brooklyn, and then moving to a rehab facility, and then to her childhood and adulthood, both in the US and the Middle East. You know, these memories kind of spring up as vignettes rather than there being more of a a past present kind of structure um kind of moving from deciding to tell it 
kind of very first person, very internalised in that way. Why did you also want to tell it in a more kind of, perhaps we'd say vignette, if that's the right word, uh, fashion with these kind of moments coming out more organically? Um, it was because I, one of the things that I wanted to sh- explore, um, my interest as a writer was free, like associative memory. And to, I wanted to show how something like that you encounter, an encounter you have in the present moment, how that is influenced by, and the way that you, you know, behave in that moment can be so strongly influenced by something in your childhood or in your past without you even consciously realizing it. And that's why, you know, you have like this present day narrative that is punctuated by these, um, these like vignettes that occur in different points of t- at different points of time and in different yeah. like you know places even was to really just sort of see- i wanted to sort of seamlessly just land in those moments um and to show how and to suggest to the reader that like the this moment this vignette is part of what's impacting her behavior right now in this present moment, and so that's why the vignette based um structure of the novel exists and we understand that you're currently working on a series of essays um as a a follow-up to to this book and we wondered what you could tell us about your next project and and anything else you're working on too and whether your collection and your writing in the future will look at some of these very pertinent themes in more detail or in a slightly different way or whether you think you might move to some different topics yeah we'd just love to hear what you're working on next yeah I mean so I I find that I get anxious every time I talk about my next project I don't know why Uh. but I I don't know I've I've heard that's normal but I think writers are always anxious yeah um, I I it's a collection of essays and it's it's based around diasporic or you know Arab and Muslim characters in the diaspora um outside of the Middle East primarily and just sort of um, I think many of the same themes exist, um, although there are some other ones that I am excited about um, as well. But I, you know, I'm thinking about like I for, how people forge a sense of like home and um, belonging, and um, I find that a lot of the pieces also have love in some form. Lots of the essays, uh, it doesn't always have to be romantic love, but. Yeah. There's often relationships and um, how those relationships speak to these larger themes. Mm. And so, yeah, that's what I'm working on now. Is, and I'm also working on a novel, another novel as well, um, which is way different than You Exist Too Much, but uh, uh-uh. like much less, much more, what's the word? There are, I think it's more of a shifting perspective um, <laughs> every other chapter. Uh, kind of novel but um but yeah so that's that is what I'm working on yeah and and staying staying sort of sort of staying sane during the pandemic also yeah (laughs) I'm working on that (laughs) yeah I mean uh, speaking of staying sane we've been actually uh we've conducted a whole bunch of interviews uh during the pandemic we'd like to ask this question um what kind of other pop culture novels movies or anything music uh have you been really vibing with enjoying want to highlight as i don't know making your lockdown uh more colorful or just something that you've enjoyed recently that you want to share with us and uh listeners (laughs) 
Sure. Well, I mean, I just read and then watched Normal People. I'm sure everyone has already. It's nothing new,、um, but I found that to be just so. I don't know. I love the pacing of it, actually, of the series.、Um, it was really, really great. And then I also have been.、Um, I just finished reading a novel that in this called Luster by a woman named Raven Lilani that I found to be really amazing. That book came out in August,、um, and it's also it revolves around a sort of affair, and it's interesting. <laughs> so I would recommend that as well. Um, and then, yeah, I'm not sure what else I've been consuming.、Um, many, many different things, really. Yeah. You know,、uh, news about the election. <laughs> That doesn't、yeah. really fall in、oh, yeah. category. <laughs> hard to get away from. <laughs> hard to get away from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today,、um, and thank you for those、uh, recommends as well.、Um, heard great things about Luster. And yeah, this has been a delight, and、uh, we really enjoyed you exist too much, and we're really excited to read your essays and your next novel as well. Oh well, thank you so much. It's been so lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much to Zena for coming on. So we delved into some of the themes of you exist too much in the interview, but we're now going to chat a little bit more about the novel. Helena, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I think one thing I was expecting that I definitely found was fulfilled was this very, very kind of clear link between, you know, clear discussion of like the Palestinian American experience. I'm always really interested in、um, not just like cultural experiences, but like growing up experiences or actual like events that happen to people、um, that I have never experienced myself. And I was really, I was really, I really wanted to kind of hear what this like Palestinian American childhood and identity is like. To have and to talk about and to discuss, it's all these. I think in these novels,、uh, there's always like that one relationship which the、um, the person's childhood and then their kind of like personal development hinges on. Thinking back to like Tennis Lessons, for example, by Susanna、yeah. Dickey. Again, that relationship really hinged on the girl's relationship with her mother and her mother's experiences that are then put on the girl. So I like that, like Zayna's book. Whilst they both have this like myopic focus on the internal monologue of the character, Zayna's is a bit more like open, I suppose, in that there's a bit more that you get to see of the character's world.、Um, but I do think both of them, as these like Baldig's Roman books, you know, the coming of age kind of story, both of them hinge around this like very crucial relationship between the character and I think a parent in this sense. And I really like that about that too. You know, I think she really did a great job in like showing us what it's like to have this like. Not not just toxic, but it's very like important and affecting relationship with one's mother, where you you love them a lot and you care about them so much, but like their traumas focus on you. And I really liked how she did that. I felt it really gave a lot to the character, and I think it made it. I think it made it very insightful, which I really enjoyed. Those those two things about the book I thought were were really great, and I really enjoyed very insightful relationship with the mother, and then also that very like experiential and like. Important depiction, I think, of like a Palestinian American dual experience. I think I really liked.、Um, how about you? What did you、mm. think? Yeah, I think you're right that this novel has shades of Tennis Lessons by Susanna Dickey, which we spoke about on a previous episode, in which we also interviewed Susanna. I think you know the protagonists are very different in lots of ways, but they share, as you say, that complex mother-daughter relationship, and the novels chronicle how. The main characters, who are in fact both nameless, 
come to accept that. I also really enjoyed just how evocative the writing was in this novel. It The story jumps across continents, across time periods, but whether the main character is falling in love in Italy, heartbroken in New York, or remembering a childhood memory from Bethlehem, the reader is right there along with her, thanks to Zaina's prose. I also thought the depiction of the main character's love addiction and how, as Zaina discussed in the interview, it's really linked to her internalised homophobia. I thought that was really thought-provoking, really thoughtfully explored. The main character's a bisexual, Arab, Muslim woman. She's searching for connection, but she's isolated and she's struggling. And so she starts obsessing over the unattainable, as Zaina puts it. And that's an outlet for, for these struggles, which stem from this lack of self-acceptance, which in, its, in turn stems from a lack of acceptance from her family. Quite a chunk of the book takes place at a rehab centre, which the protagonist checks herself in at to try and combat her love addiction. And I found those passages those sections of that section of the book really interesting too um, because as well as the protagonist and the exploration of her struggles we also get an insight into some of the other people who are at this facility and who are also struggling. The time in the rehab centre is interesting actually because of it reminds me a little bit of like um, you know the Pisces that book yes, about the woman yeah. who like goes off with a merman and it's all very yeah. weird and like is in her own head but I, I'm not she doesn't go to rehab center then but I think it's a similar thing where the girl in the, in the novel is constantly questioning her thought process and her realities and why she does things and she, she's making poor choices because of her her mental not mental illness but of her you know the things she's had to, she's trying to deal with but she continues to do it and that self-awareness is really interesting and I think the time in the rehab center is a really interesting discussion of the choices that her character makes kind of knowingly knowing they're not good choices for her but does it anyway and it's just as her love addiction and her the way in which she keeps getting obsessed with people and then being disappointed by them and she does it over and over and she really examines why she does these things because it's in the setting of the rehab center where she's constantly examining her choices and other people are examining her choices and you feel she's struggling to get better even if it's taking her a long time and she keeps going backwards rather than forwards I feel like I really enjoyed the way that that was presented in that way because it was like she was constantly on a journey of trying to get better even if she wasn't always succeeding um and I think there's what's funny about it is too is there was right there were so many different like um so many different like relationships I feel like she was in one and another and another than another and there was someone else and someone else and the guy from the center and then the woman from down the road and then like the woman she was neighbors with and you know I was kind of frustrated for a while but these constant like really flat relationships where she was just going back and forward and I was like just don't just stop getting in relationships with people like stop you need to stop but I think it was a clever way to do it because she was always growing through all of it and to kind of tack back I suppose into that discussion she has of what it's like to be a person in American I think that question of conflict both internal and external you know like what the, what is the impact of constant conflict on your in your family's life and in your life on the way you interact with the world right and mm. the conflict with her mother and the conflict between you know, in the middle east with the palestine israel thing you know i feel like it was really interesting for her to write a book like this because i feel like sometimes you know it's so hard to understand 
what people of dual nationality and things like that go through and how hard it can be to live through conflict and to continue to like live your life even if you move away from it right like she lives in america and i like that it didn't end with too much you know there is incomplete resolution right like not to spoil it for anybody but like it's not like a yeah, that's true. It's not a sad ending but it's not like a massively happy ending either right like her issue with her mother is never you know what you what she might want it to be right but i think in some ways that like that's Anna's point you exist too much is available in the uk from the 19th of november and it was published in the us back in june order from your local bookshop uh, we may be in lockdown but you can still get hold of the book safely and enjoy delving into it yes absolutely thank you again to Zaina as well for coming on the show we really really appreciate it and now we're going to move on to our chatty but section of the episode where we chat about things that we like <laughs> I'm doing air quotes and I don't know why <laughs> I wanted to start with His Dark Materials, the returning second season of the adaptation of the Philip Pullman novels. You mentioned earlier, Helena, about how there's something about the sort of dark nights closing in and the autumn TV schedule that's kind of comforting, and especially in these kind of uncertain times. And I have to say that last Sunday, I was so delighted when I realised it was like eight o'clock and I was cooking myself aubergine parmigiana, would recommend. Um, oh, and I, I made the... aubergine parmigiana last week as well. Really? Oh my God, we, were so... we, we didn't talk about this, but we were clearly on the same wavelength. Um, but yeah, I got it out of the oven and then I was like, it's eight o'clock and His Dark Materials is back. And so I watched it live, which I rarely do. I mean, uh, I really enjoyed watching it at that 8pm Sunday night slot. Um, and I also just loved settling back into that world. And, you know, you and I texted about this. We, um, we're both fans of the novels um, and we both really enjoyed the first season, which I think we talked about on the podcast at the time. But I actually, I don't know, I feel like I almost enjoyed this first episode even more. Northern Lights was previously made into a film in like the noughties, um, which wasn't particularly well received. But I think it did mean that while watching the first series of His Dark Materials, we'd all previously seen the world be brought to life before. It might have been brought to life in a way that was slightly disappointing for some fans, but it meant it was kind of familiar. Whereas I think it was really exciting this time round to see the world or the story, a st part of the story brought to life that hadn't previously been on screen because, um, yeah, no one has previously adapted um, the second or third novel for the big or small screen. So yeah, I think I was really excited for that reason. And we got to see the characters Will and Lyra interact for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. I think I agree with you definitely that like, it was exciting because uh, the Northern Lights, you know, by dint of being the first one, the first novel uh, in the series, I definitely know it better than all of them. I might have like, I don't know, in my life, like decided to start reading them and then only got as far as Northern Lights because you start at the beginning yeah. and then you forget or, you know, the, the Golden Compass, the movie adaptation with the American title um, has been around for a while and sort of vaguely panned, um, even though I think that the casting was great in that film. Um, but I do think, yeah, like I know the story of the Northern Lights really, really well, but the Amber Spyglass, sorry, the Subtle Knife, so season two, is really a strikeout for the BBC and like, let's BB, they've already BBC'd it really well. I really love the way they went with the adaptation, but now it's like fully their own, 
fully their creative vision yeah. you know all the characters are so great and i what i really love too is the way they've interpreted the the magic and the the um the kind of like imaginative elements of the of the uh, show you know like the concept of lyra's world and then the middle world that she and will meet in with the castle um and the city and then also the witches the aeronaut uh, the demons, um, you know, the, the the magisterium, you know, um, the, the villains, the magisterium. I really like the way they conceptualise those. You know, it's a bit darker, kind of steampunk, arts deco. I really love the yeah. way they've gone about it. And I also really liked the way they did the city. I always imagined the city that she and Will meet in, the city of angels, mm. as being very Mediterranean and Italian. And as somehow that came across with a few bits yes. of uh, interesting mathematical stairs put in to like <laughs> cite the interesting kind of like fated relationship that Will and Lyra have and always walking towards each other. So yeah, I really enjoyed the way the BBC have gone about putting together the world and absolutely for the for the, the main actors uh Daphne Keane who plays Lyra and Amir Wilson who's relatively new on the scene playing Will uh they're both actually a bit older now they're definitely both kind of like mid puberty which is interesting because that's like one of the themes of the, the the series right like the loss of innocence the growing up kind of thing that Lyra and Will yeah. go through it's really cool to see them growing up as they go through the the show so like last season Daphne was quite youngish looking and now she's looking a bit more like she's 13 14 you know so I like that a lot and I think credit to them you know Daphne has is, has, is retaining her way of doing Lyra as quite like I think Philip Pullman describes her as like a savage uh, in the first novel and I think that's very true like she doesn't hold the convention she's kind of like out there and rude and loud and just attacks things which is really cool I like the way Daphne plays her and Will slightly more restrained more grown up because he's gone through a bit more in his life and things like that they pair off really well and there's a great little bit as well where like Will protects a cat and you're like, yes, Will, yeah. defend, the, defend the cat. Um, so I think that was, I really got to give it to the actors as well for, oh, and Ruth, Wilson, Ruth Wilson as well, you know, with her oh, unhinged gosh. portrayal of Mrs. Coulter. I love that Mrs. Coulter, Mrs. Coulter's crazy. In the novel, she's crazy. Mm. Uh, not in like a crazy woman way, but in like a she's very frightening person. And I think that she does it really, really, really well. The staging and production values are also spectacular. The way that they bring Chittagatse, which is the the city where Lyra and Will meet, the way they bring that to life is really effective. Like it's very beautiful, very Venetian, very Italian influenced, as you say, but also quite eerie and spookily empty. And we find out why as the episode goes on. You know, you you mentioned that scene where um, Lyra and Will are discussing how they're both from Oxford, but from different Oxfords, and they realise that there are these three worlds or at least three worlds, that they have all inhabited. And they're both sitting on these steps. They're close to one another, but also it's as if they're kind of just out of reach, which is obviously very symbolically interesting. Um, and But the, the, also they managed to kind of bring out some humour in their kind of like, you know, Will's from our world and Lyra's from this other world. Um, we joked about the fact that there is this moment that like just completely threw me when Will got out his iPhone and took a photo which obviously the original books were written in the 90s so nobody had iPhones but I thought that was kind of interesting I'm like how are they going to use his phone going forward like how does his phone have signal in the other world that there was no explanation of any of those things but I'm excited to see that kind of you know we're both from different worlds but we're banding together kind of plot play out on screen 
um, which is, yeah, exciting to see. Uh, Ruth Wilson, as you say, amazing. But, oh my God, like, that first episode, her actions were very scary. I think, I mean, she it was very scary in the first season too, but I think I'd sort of forgotten that to a degree and just remembered her glamorous apartment and, like, beautiful coats. On a totally different note, one thing I really enjoyed about this episode was that Pan, Lyra's demon, plays a larger role and is more prominent um, for anyone who's not aware of the um, mythology behind his dark materials, in Philip Pullman's world, characters have demons who are this extension of their soul that appears in animal form. In the first season, the demons were less prominent, which was potentially because of the budget, um, which completely makes sense, but it was something that some people felt was missing. And I know you you were saying that... Um, there's a story where Philip Pullman explains why he created demons and he had this very particular reason, which was to do with kind of plot and character, right? He included the demons because he was like, Lyra needs someone to speak to. Um, that's what her character needs. And so all of that was born from this need for the story to be delivered, not just from Lyra, but from someone else as well. And I think the show actually heralding that a bit more with the use of Pan and also the witches, demons, and the, there's a meeting between the witches and their demons speak to each other and it's a bit more their politics is expressed kind of through the demons too. And I really enjoy that they've used it a bit more this season than they did last season. Um, animation budgets aside, I understand it's quite hard to animate yeah. a whole bunch of animals. Yeah, it's interesting because I know obviously in the first season we were principally in Lyra's world where everybody is supposed to have a demon. And I think they did kind of struggle with that because obviously in reality, it should be everyone should have a very different kind of animal that is an expression of their unique personality. But they often just gave like loads of people birds and things, which were obviously relatively easy to do. But I suppose an advantage of the, this season so far is Lyra was like the only character in that episode who had a demon. So they were able to kind of really bring Pan to life and have him switch forms when needed and... And also just, I think, those like little quiet moments where she was sitting chatting to him, because those are such a part of the book, as you say, um, and give you such an insight into Lyra's, well, her thoughts, her, you know, inner personality, um, that I think it was really great to see those, because I think we had missed them a little bit in the first season. Uh, we're recording this on a Sunday, so I'm excited to watch the second episode later, um, and, and just see how, how it pans out. Um, you know, the the scope of the story just becomes larger and, and even more involved as the books progress. But I'm kind of confident that Jack Thorne, who we talked about in previous episodes, as he also um, wrote Enola Holmes, which we enjoyed, I'm confident that he's going to do a good job. I think they've established a really good setup. So yeah, can't wait. I think it's going to get us through the, the long lockdown Sunday evenings. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if anybody's interested in watching, His Dark Materials is on BBC iPlayer in the UK every Sunday. Yeah. And in the US, it's on HBO. Absolutely. And I guess to move the conversation on to another premiere that has divided mm. people, I suppose, a bit more than as His Dark Materials is, has. Um, Francesca, I, you recently have watched the Netflix adaptation of the famous Davru Tamorier book, Rebecca. Um, and so what are your thoughts on this, what I suppose is a chilling adaptation of a very, very famous novel? Yeah, so Rebecca, uh, as you say, premiered on Netflix. It was directed by Ben Wheatley, um, who's known for that movie High Rise with Tom Hiddleston, which I haven't actually seen. Um, 
but that from what I know of that story it's kind of like very much a thriller and quite unnerving so I think I was expecting uh this to be the same as you say Rebecca is unsettling story um and you know it starts off with this young woman another unnamed narrator I feel like that we've talked a lot about unnamed narrators recently um she becomes known simply as the second Mrs. De Winter when she marries this man, Maxime De Winter, who is an older English gentleman who has this sprawling country estate in Cornwall. And she meets him in the south of France um, and they have this kind of whirlwind romance. And then when she goes back to Cornwall with him, she finds out about his first wife, who is the titular Rebecca, the eponymous Rebecca, um, who has died in what seems to be somewhat mysterious and tragic circumstances and the main character can't really escape the spectre of Rebecca who seemingly haunts her her home but also her every action as everybody keeps comparing her to Rebecca so it's an iconic 1938 novel and I think it has spawned not only many adaptations also many kind of homages because I think it is a kind of premise that a lot of people can relate to, but on like a much, we hope, kind of smaller scale way. Uh, it's kind of taken to these sort of gothic extremes in Rebecca, which also has deliberate shades of Jane Eyre. Um, so yeah, it's it's a really famous book. And it was also adapted into a very beloved movie in the 40s by none other than Hitchcock. So this movie had like a lot to live up to. Um, but I was really excited for it. I was kind of excited for it like the minute it was announced. Um Lily James, who is in many things, is also in this, playing the second Mrs. De Winter. And then Army Hammer plays Maxine De Winter, which a lot of people think he's a bit miscast because that he's probably a bit young. Um, and also he's American. But I actually, I thought he was good. I mean, obviously he's, we know he's quite good at playing kind of buttoned up characters who have maybe inner torment, but they don't really reveal it. And I think he very much plays to that strength in this film. And Lily James is also, I think, very good at playing the kind of ingenue, uh, naive, young character. But she's also quite good at playing the, um, uh, you know, at, at transitioning into something else as, as the story unfurls. But yeah, as you say, it's had mixed reviews and I watched it kind of knowing that. But I really enjoyed it. I thought, I mean, you know, I understand all the hesitations. So and, you know, I've uh, read the book and I'm familiar with other Daphne du, no Daphne du Maurier novels, um, which I've also read and loved. Uh, though I haven't actually read it for a long time, which I do think is perhaps a factor in that I wasn't, I was less conscious of some of the deviations from the book because it had just been a while since I read the book. Um, but I think, I mean, the standout performance is from Kristen Scott Thomas, who plays the housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers, who was very loyal to the former Mrs. De Winter and very anti the new Mrs. De Winter. And as you can imagine, Kristen Scott Thomas is great in that role um, and, you know, kind of plays that sort of devious and conflicted character very well. Um, but I think, you know, I quite enjoyed just that the costumes are really beautiful. Arnie Hammer, Army Hammer, for some reason, keeps like he wears multiple times this sort of mustard yellow suit. Uh, which is very striking. Uh, Lily James has a lot of amazing outfits. It's very beautifully filmed in the south of France at the beginning. And then this is kind of, you know, Paul Dark style, crashing waves and like Cornwall vibes later on. Uh, so I really liked all of that. But I also thought the leads were really good. I mean, I think the main way that this film deviates from the novel 
uh, is that I don't think it kind of interrogates the conflict between what Maxim de Winter has done and what and the way that his current wife reacts to that and the way that and the impact that what he's done has on her. I think, you know, in, in I don't want to kind of give anything away for anyone who doesn't know the story. Um, so I'm a bit being suitably vague, but the film, it, it kind of does play it very much as a straightforward romance. And I think it's obviously not a straightforward romance. Uh, it's got darker tone, underlying tones. And I think those darker tones perhaps get a bit kind of blurred out in this movie in favour of kind of making it like sumptuous and sultry and and beautiful to watch. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I mean, I, I haven't watched this adaptation. No, having read Daphne du Maurier recently, I read Jamaica Inn a few years ago and loved it. And I've also just read Frenchman's Creek, which I also loved. I'm a bit more of a fan of her more adventure style novels, which still have that dark element in it, which is she loves the mysterious darkness of like, is someone a villain or they a hero? I think she likes that kind of thing in her novels. But I do think that's really true that she questions her characters and their moral reasons and nobody is perfect and you know in Frenchman's Creek for example like what you know the woman you know the main character kills someone in the pursuit of love right and Debbie DeMorrow is not saying that's that's allowed but she's saying that like she wants to investigate what people will do for love and obsession right and for that yes, pursuit yeah. of a life that they maybe won't always have right and like the new Mrs. De Winter you know she kind of right she kind of like gives up her morals in order to accept Maxim right and to be okay with his past right and then inhabit the spirit of this like late wife and accept the stories of her because it's like the only way she can survive um kind of similar I guess to like the woman in the attic kind of thing with Jane Eyre like Jane Eyre has to become okay with her husband's bad part blah 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 and I think that like playing it straight ignores David de Maurier's deeper moral questions that she always imbues her books with yeah, I, I think that the idea of obsession is such a theme of Rebecca because basically Mrs. the new Mrs. De Winter becomes obsessed with the idea of Rebecca. Um, and I think that permeates through this new movie very well. But the sequence in which you find out what actually happened to Rebecca is sort of underplayed in a way that I was kind of surprised at. Like, it, I, I don't know, because obviously it's been a while since I read the book. Prior to this movie, the most recent adaptation I'd seen was an adaptation that you and I, Helena, saw together, which was a theatre production of Rebecca by the Knee-High Theatre Company, which is headed up by the director, Emma Rice, who you may know from her tenure as the creative director at the Globe Theatre. This production, um, like all of uh, Emma Rice's incredible shows, relied on multimedia, puppets, singing. It was a very three-dimensional show in every sense of the word. But I think what was great about that adaptation was that it really displayed like the very gothic, spooky, confusing, obsessional quality of this Rebecca woman, right? Like there was a lot of like Cornish singing and like dark and lots of references to water and depth and things like that. Um, and also to like the confusing ghost of Rebecca. And I think what I liked about that was like, I remember Maxim wasn't very likable, was he, in that show? Um, he ends no, up being quite right. like a weak character who was dominated by Mrs. De Winter, the new Mrs. De Winter in the end. Um, and like, it was all about her, 
right? So I think that mm. maybe that what that film does wrong, or not wrong, just that maybe that film does that it maybe could have thought about less doing was romanticising Maxim. And I think it's hard yes. not to do with um, Army Hammer in it as well, who's like, yeah. you know, the hero of like, uh, Call Me By Your Name, for example, who's very like handsome and charming and all those kinds of things. So, you know, to to lose to lose that perhaps is something that other, other adaptations that we've seen don't do. You right, know what I mean? I think, yeah, he... he my recollection of the theatre production we saw, I barely remember Maxim. I feel, I feel like he was, he became a kind of shadow kind of character towards the end. And as you say, it ended with, with the second Mrs. De Winter dominating him, setting the, uh, setting the tone for like what their relationship was going to be like going forward, uh, which is quite interesting. And the sort of interesting um you know that the power dynamics between them have shifted so dramatically because at the beginning she's this she's this kind of as we said young naive girl but she's also not got any money she's not got any social standing but their roles have kind of been reversed i'll do a, i'll do a spoiler alert i'm gonna spoil the ending so if you don't want to hear what i say skip over maybe 30 seconds and and you'll be fine um but the ending in which basically the second Mrs. De Winter has managed to help Maxim get away with the murder of Rebecca. It's still, the, the very last shot is, um, she is like hugging him and it just zooms in on her face and she kind of looks at the camera, which I liked because that kind of made, you could interpret that how you wanted. You can interpret that as like, she's looking at the camera like, yeah, I, I've managed to do, get what I want, which is perhaps a bit more infitting with, um, the Emma Rice production we were talking about. Yeah, or it's like she's controlling the story. Yeah, so I kind of still, I still liked that. I still think they got away with it. Um, You know, yeah, I I enjoyed this, but I, as I said, I do understand the hesitation. I haven't read Frenchman's Creek, but after what you were just saying about it, I'm definitely going to read it because I really did enjoy all the Daphne du Maurier I read before. So, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Daphne du Maurier is a pretty iconic writer. You know, she was ahead of her time in what she was trying to do and what she was trying to say. And I think that, well, Jamaica, Jamaica Inn and uh, Frenchman's Creek are more adventure than a psychological drama, I think. I And I enjoy that personally a bit more. I think the spirit of what Rebecca's trying to do is the same. I think as a final comment, I will say that I ultimately did really enjoy this film whilst understanding its flaws. And I think you would like it too, Helena. Well, I think we've hit the end of our, we've hit the end of our quota there. We've done book, we've done theatre, we've done TV show, we've done movie. Um, So thank you so much for um, tuning in and listening to us. Um, Thank you again to Zaina for coming on the show. We always appreciate and love having a guest on the show. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you'd like to engage with us, uh, we are on Twitter at RealLLW. We're on Instagram, Loves Labours Watched. You can email us, uh, business inquiries and and any other kind of inquiry, Loves Labours Watched at gmail.com if you're interested in checking out our back catalogue you can dive right in at love sabers watched we're on apple podcasts spotify wherever you prefer to get your podcasts we have an episode where we interview lenny abrahamson director of normal people which was of course zayna's recommendation in this episode so please do go check out our back catalogue in these dark lockdown days um, to kind of spice up your life uh, as it, you know, recording these and talking to spices <laughs> up ours to quote the Spice yeah. Girls. And absolutely, uh, we'll be back in a few weeks with another, uh, I think, Christmassy themed episode, I think we were planning. 
yeah, we're, we're going to get festive early because, again, that's what we need during lockdown. So yes. stay tuned for that. And hint, if you want to follow along with us, watch some Vanessa Hudgens Christmas movies, is all we're saying. The Vanessa Hudgens Christmas Netflix Cinematic Universe. We're going to dive yeah. right back in again. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks. And until then, stay safe and see you later. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.